In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. I pointed out to you any number of times that we call the Gospels the Gospel according to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, to John, because they are not all the same. No two of them are exactly the same. Three of them look more like each other than they look like the fourth, and so we call them synoptics. They sort of look alike. But even they begin their Gospels quite differently. When we were dealing with the shepherds, And the angelic chorus, I reminded you that Dr. Fred Craddock in his commentary on Luke says, writing material in the first century was very expensive, and yet Luke has spent 81 verses getting his gospel underway, and we still don't have a baby Jesus. In Mark's gospel, verse 9, we have Jesus, and he's already an adult. Already an adult. This story we're dealing with today has been crucial over the last 2,000 years. People trying to figure out if John was in fact preaching a baptism for repentance, what was Jesus doing in the river with John? If in fact he was one who knew no sin, why was he in the river with his relative John? Dr. Pensera picked out uh, great hymns again this morning for you. When we come to the last hymn, uh, you may think you don't know it because the words are not so familiar, but the tune you know very well, you can sing it. Pay close attention to the words. It's one more poet's attempt to try to tell you what was going on there at the river. Basically, two things we think. Jesus was acknowledging the sin of Israel. But 1,800 years before, Israel had been set apart as a different people through Abraham and Sarah and their descendants to try to convince the rest of the world there's only one God, and he is the God who called Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and generation after generation of Jews. But through 1,800 years, the Jews had wandered left and right, forward and backward, moaned, complained, and whined, as Christians, as Gentiles have done during our time as well. So Jesus was identifying with John's message. Yes, Israel needs to confess. Yes, Israel has wandered far from the path of God and God's will. And that he who never failed to trust God, who never failed to put himself out for the well-being of another, was taking on to himself the sins of all the rest of us. He would be God's agent uh, to redeem us, to set us right once more with God. Mark, in speaking this voice from the descending Holy Spirit, has chosen two little bits from two different places in the Old Testament. One of these is from Psalm 2 and 7, which is called a royal psalm. It's a poem written to celebrate the Davidic kingship, this this powerful family that ruled in Jerusalem. And so this part about you are my son, my beloved, that's from Psalm. And then the part about the one with whom I am well pleased, appears just that way in the second portion of the work of Isaiah. 
Remember, there were three portions of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters written by a prophet who had seen the destruction of the ten northern tribes and was begging the southern two tribes that remained to turn again to God. Then chapter 40 begins with the part the tenor soloist sings in Handel's Messiah, Comfort, comfort ye my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. They are defeated now. They are in Babylon. This is a different prophet almost 200 years later who's trying to buoy the people up to say we must not give in and become Babylonians as our cousins did in becoming Assyrian. We've got to remain a separate people. And then the third portion of Isaiah was written by the one who actually got home again and saw the destruction of Jerusalem. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But for right now, Mark sees this experience as God's telling us something very important about Jesus. One, yes, he's from the tribe of David. He will be a Davidic king. And when they've had one now, have not had one for 600 years. But he will also be the description of Israel in the second portion of Isaiah, and that's the suffering servant. That is, he will be like a Davidic king in some ways, but he's not going to ride the great stallion. He is going to come into Jerusalem riding on a burro three years later. Okay. But where I want to focus our energies this morning is to say that I believe what God did in the baptism of Jesus he would do for you and me as well. I don't mean that we are Mary's child. I don't mean that we are the Messiah. But what God was willing to do in baptism then, I believe God is willing to do in baptism now. I've underlined four parts. The first part is that simple statement that Jesus came all the way from Nazareth in Galilee to John at the River Jordan. Now, Mark has already told you in the first eight verses that he says all Jerusalem and Judea were coming to John at the River Jordan to be baptized by him. Now, surely not every person had come, but there were enough people coming from Jerusalem and Judea that Mark could make such a grandiose statement. We know where Jerusalem was, where it is today. We know where Jericho was, where it is today. Scholars believe they have found the very portion of the river where John was probably baptizing. So you would walk 17 miles down a descending roadway, descending a mile in 17, to get to Jericho and then maybe another three miles or so up the river, 20 miles. Jesus walked 80 miles. 80 miles, and he's the only Galilean mentioned who walked 80 miles to meet John in the river. How far would you walk? Would you walk 80 miles to be baptized? Would you walk 80 miles if you believed God would be there on that river bank to make a difference in your life? One morning this week, I was eating my breakfast, reading the Tulsa World, got to the sports department. Uh, I love football, so I was reading about these last few weeks of the football season. I like basketball as well, and I was reading about area basketball teams. And all of a sudden, I saw an article written by Kelly Bastian, who doesn't write about football and basketball, track or baseball. He writes about hunting and fishing. I grew up hunting and fishing, but I don't hunt and fish much anymore. 
I rarely read Mr. Bostian's column, but this one caught my attention. Finding Jesus, in a way. Finding Jesus on a duck hunt? I started reading. Kelly Bostian said that he and a group of men had decided to go out duck hunting, and he said, I know all the rest of you will think we're absolutely insane. We were hunting on Duck Creek, and the creek was frozen over. We were having to break ice off of our decoys and break ice on the creek big enough to float the decoys and hope ducks would think there was water enough for them to swim in. Uh, they weren't likely to land on solid ice, so we were trying to keep this part of the creek thawed. We'd gotten there before dark, uh, before sunrise, he says, still in the dark. I had a little headlamp on so I could carry my decoys and my gun. And suddenly as I trudged along this frozen creek bank, I saw in the mud, frozen over, a little bobblehead doll. I picked it up, dusted it off a little bit, and saw it was Jesus. A bobblehead doll. Now, fishermen know these sort of things. He said it was seven and a half inches tall. Seven and a half inches tall, this little bobblehead Jesus. And he said, after I got it cleaned off, I shook it. And his little head nodded at me back and forth. He went on to describe that they had hunted for seven hours and still trying to keep the creek uh, ice broken up so ducks could get down on it. The decoys would float in a matter that looked sort of like a duck from way up there. Uh, seven hours, he said, and finally we started home. And it just didn't seem appropriate to leave Jesus there in all that frozen water, all that filth and mud. So I took him home with me. And I cleaned him up. He's with me still. And I thought, you know, that's what Jesus does for us. <laughs> Picks us up off a frozen creek bank, cleans us up, and takes us home. Would you walk 80 miles for an experience like that? Number two. As Jesus was coming out of the water, the heavens were torn in two. Where did Mark get an idea like that? Well, go back to Isaiah. It's in that third portion. In the third portion, written by a third author, one who went home after the Persians overran the Babylonians, that is, forerunners of modern-day Iran overran forerunners of modern-day Iraq, and said to the Jews, you can go home. Who knows better how to farm Israel than you do, how to grow olives there better than you, how to graze sheep better than you? You can pay more taxes to Persia. You can go home. Not all of them did go home, and those who did go found that things were exactly as they had left them 50 years before. Solomon's temple had been ransacked. Everything of gold, silver, and bronze had been stripped out of it. It had been burned to the ground. Only a pile of ashes remained on the top of the hill. The royal palace, everything of value had been stripped out. Gold, silver, bronze, it had been burned to the ground. Only a pile of ashes remained. The last view they had, the gates were being burned off the hinges of the city so that the city was completely vulnerable. Anyone could come and do them harm anytime they pleased. The gates had never been restored. The walls had been tumbled down, and they were still tumbled down. The city was completely vulnerable to anybody and everybody. 
The Canaanites had reasserted themselves. They'd taken all the best watering holes. They'd taken all the best grazing lands. They had taken over all the olive groves and all of the wheat fields. And this prophet says, Lord God, would you rend the heavens and come down and help us? Now, where do they get the word rend? Well, remember that ancients tried to figure out all that water they thought was overhead because it's blue and it leaks through when it rains. And so they talked about a canopy, a great canopy of heaven. They knew they'd learned how to make tents that held back the rainwater. So perhaps God had some great tent that held back the waters above them. And they could imagine his tearing a hole in the tent and coming down. Rend the heavens. And now Mark says, the heavens were torn. God, who had seemed to be absent for so long, was suddenly genuinely present again. A couple of weeks before Christmas, there was a big article in the paper about the 70th anniversary of the first showing of the movie Gone with the Wind. December 1939, Margaret Mitchell's great novel had been made into a movie. It has done remarkably well. In inflation-adjusted dollars, the Wall Street Journal said it has sold tickets worth $1.5 billion. Now, I was not born in 1939. I didn't see it till I was an elementary child. I remember when my mother and dad said they wanted to go see Gone with the Wind, but I like to go see Gone with the, Gone with the Wind. I didn't know what the story was about. Sure, I wanted to go see Gone with the Wind, and so we went. I still remember them chasing that chicken, trying to catch that chicken so they could have this big dinner. I still remember all those black men picking cotton in the cotton field, one of them screaming, it's quitting time, Big Joe saying, that's not for you to decide. And then he yells, quitting time, and they can all quit. You remember. The big parties at Twelve Oaks and Tara, Rhett Butler and Scarlett, and that vile one, Ashley Wilkes, you remember, Melanie. You remember how they talked of a brewing war, a brewing war. We'll whip those Yankees in weeks. We'll be back here in no time at all. And they got on their horses and galloped away. Intermission time. Hey, I was an elementary kid. This meant popcorn and candy. And so popcorn and candy, and we filed back into the movie theater, and it started again. You really need to see Gone with the Wind on a big, big screen. Because when the second half begins... The camera is focused on a very small part of the train station in Atlanta, Georgia. Wounded and dying men, and it pulls back and pulls back until you see thousands, thousands of men who are groaning and writhing who are dying. There's one old doctor, Dr. Mead, his wife, right alongside him, they're old enough they should have been retired years ago, but they're moving from one wounded Confederate to the next, moving from one to the next, doing what they can, doing what they can, and every once in a while looking at the bulletin board where when messages come in of more wounded and dying, they can look to see if their son is among them. And surely enough, 
The message comes from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and their son, too, has been killed. And if you remember the look in their eyes, this old mother and father, as they embrace and then turn and go back to work among these who lie before them and never forget it. You think we need God to rend the heavens and come down and help us? We're still killing mother's babies. We're still killing father's sons. We're still killing and killing. In a new year, we hope and pray once more that God will tear open the heavens and come down and make possible his kingdom on earth, even as it is in heaven. Number three, the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove, Mark writes. The Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. For 2,000 years, scholars have tried to figure out what is this imagery of a dove here? Um, there's really no direct reference in the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit's being like a dove and no other reference in the New Testament to its being like a dove. They found one rather obscure rabbinic writing which describes the way uh, young people should learn how to read Scripture. Perhaps you've seen at the Western Wall in Jerusalem uh, young Jews who are praying at the wall. And uh, they are taught a certain rhythm, particularly among the, the uh, Orthodox Jews, a certain rhythm that the body moves back and forth, back and forth. And the scriptures are recited out loud. Not really loud, but, but softly. Softly, so that one is intoning the words. Uh, one is not only saying the words, one is hearing the words, but not so loudly that you are disturbing the person next to you. And one of these rabbinic writings says that this reciting of scripture at the temple is like the cooing of a dove. That's about as close as they've come. The important thing is the Holy Spirit descends. And in the Bible it says those whom God has called, God will enable. Luke is even more specific in his gospel. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall have power. Regensburg, Germany, is not a touristy kind of place. It's been in the news more the last couple of years because Pope Benedict XVI was once a young professor at the university in Regensburg. Gail and I have crisscrossed Germany last May uh, by train and bus to search out these five concentration camps. We've been to Regensburg. Uh, after we first got there, we'd had a fairly long train ride, and we'd gotten the bags in, and Gail said, why don't you find us a place to eat? So I was walking down the street saying to men and women, bitte uh, leben Sie here." And when somebody finally said, yeah, I should be here, I live here, could you tell me where one can find good German Bavarian food? Oh, but of course. And so I went back and said to Gail, I have it. It's right down on the riverbank. And we went down to the riverbank there in Regensburg, and there was a restaurant. Now, here in Tulsa, you see advertisements that say, serving Tulsa since 1947. Serving Tulsa since 1963. This restaurant said, serving Regensburg since 1137. 
I figured this ought to be good. All right? This ought to be good. If they've been serving the public in Regensburg since 1137, this ought to be good. We discovered that you could watch them cooking these sausages, and they weren't as big around as I usually think of German sausages. They looked more like breakfast sausages, smaller around, and not so long. But the taste was very much what we were accustomed to. And you simply walked up to the counter where they were had the flames going, and they're roasting these things. You want three, you want five, you want seven, you want nine. And uh, then you could order sides. They had sauerkraut. They had hot German potato salad. And you were supposed to go then and find yourself a table. And there was a little basket of bread there, small little German loaves, um, and several different kinds of, of mustard. So uh, we ate and enjoyed. The river's flowing right there past, and these people are all eating outdoors. It was very pleasant to eat outdoors. And then we discovered when they came over to take our money, in Europe they often uh, have the little coin purses and, and they take your money right at the table, they figured our final bill by how many loaves of bread we'd eaten. Uh, nobody told us they're going to count the loaves that are left, these little loaves of bread, and that's the way you're going to pay. So we've been to Regensburg. 500 years ago, there was a painter in Regensburg. His name was Albrecht Altdorfer. Albrecht Altdorfer decided to paint the great battle waged between Alexander the Great and King Darius of Persia in the year 333 before the Common Era. It's huge. Five feet by four feet. It has thousands of figures on it. The Greeks, the Persians. Would the Persians control the Mediterranean world? Or would the Greeks control the Mediterranean world? This great battle of Issus is the, is the, the subject of this great painting. The sun is right there on the horizon. You can see the two great figures, Alexander the Great, Darius, and their armies. But if you look more closely, you discover the weapons are not of 333 before the Common Era. The weapons are... 1528 when Albrecht painted the painting. The way they're waging war is not the way Persians and Greeks fought, it's the way Germans and Bavarians are about to fight the Ottoman Turks. You see the sun on the horizon. Is it rising? Is it setting? Completely opposite the painting, a thin, thin crescent moon sign of the Ottoman Empire. Is it rising? Is it setting? Who will determine the fate of Western civilization? The Germans have a major role or the Ottoman Turks a greater role? How will it go? If we've been called to help bring peace to the world, if we've been called to help God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is our sun rising or setting? If we've been called, have we been enabled? Number four, the voice. The voice. Paul, in his writing, says, God's Holy Spirit stands ready to whisper to your spirit that you are a child of God. 
Jesus heard the voice, Mark says. He's called agapetos, from the word agape. You're not just my son, you're my beloved son. I would put myself out for you. And God knows Jesus was put himself out for all of us. But you and I, in our baptism, can also hear the whispering of the Holy Spirit like the cooing of a dove. One of the movies that many critics have said is in the top ten for last year was a movie called Precious. It's a story of a 16-year-old African-American girl overweight who's been sexually abused by her father since before she started to school. He's impregnated her once and she has a child, Down syndrome child. He's impregnated her again. At 16, she's pregnant for the second time. Her mother is no help. Uh, she curses her, she slaps her, beats her. She only wants her to be around when it's time for the welfare checks to come so that the welfare workers can see that in fact there's a baby here and they need more money. Precious is this young teenager's name. She sees on television the beautiful people at movie premieres and big award ceremonies walking the red carpet and she sees herself walking that carpet. She sees pictures of beautiful models, thin, thin, and sees herself. She looks in a mirror and she sees someone thin and white, someone thin and white. Through a really good teacher and a really good welfare caseworker, Precious has a look into a new life. But we all do have a look into a new life. If we would kneel to be baptized, the Holy Spirit stands ready to whisper to your spirit, you don't have to have had a great father. You may not have had a nurturing mother. You don't have to be thin, and you certainly don't have to be white. I know you. You are my daughter. You are my son. You are beloved. I'm so glad you've come home to me. Amen.